we're going to do something different from now until the holidays. In the past, also, we're giving classes on the holidays. The only thing is that we kept to the style of the class. This class is meant to be primarily a class, although it's a halakha, we class on halakha, but it's also halakha on the book, the Ben Ishai. We started the class with the intention of explaining all the halakhot in the Ben Ishai for the purpose of learning, obviously, the practical halakhot. Also, if a person would like to go through the Ben Ishai, Ben Ishai is kind of like the Kitsu Shohan Aruch of the Sfaradim for the last hundred years, and not always was it simple, so that's how we started the class. However, we already discussed all the halakhot in the Ben Ishai in the past years, and therefore today... Uh, and at least for this time around, for this year, for the year coming up for Tafshin Ein He, Roshana Tafshin Ein He, for the holidays we will do just everything outside. If you'd like to see, to hear the halachot from the Benish from the reading inside the Benish you'll listen to last year's class. The class today, Razat Hashem, will have is going to be all outside. We're going to discuss the details of the halachot, the practical applications of the halachot. And the order of the classes will be as follows. We hope that today we will talk about most of the halakhot of, of uh, Rosh Hashanah. We spoke about Selichot last week a little bit. Most of the halakhot of Rosh Hashanah, the halakhot of Shofar though, they need much more time than just one hour over here. So therefore we've designated a special class for that and we did it last year. We'll air it on again next week with all the halachot. That will be next week, next Wednesday. The halachot of Shofar. The following week, the third week, we hope to jump to Hilchot Sukkah because we want to keep the halachot of Yom Kippur during the Aset Mitzvah so it will be fresh. And then after the laws of Sukkot, we hope to also cover the laws of Shemini Atzeret. And then finally the laws of uh, Yom Kippur, and then whatever we miss from Sukkot, as many outside it, Barzat Hashem will do after Yom Kippur. Let's begin, Barzat Hashem, today's class on the Halakhot of Rosh Hashanah. And we divided up the class into several parts. First, we'll begin with the Halakhot pertaining to Erev Rosh Hashanah, the day, the eve of Rosh Hashanah. Like we mentioned this year, the calendar will follow last year's calendar, which means that Rosh Hashanah will be Wednesday night, Thursday, Friday, and then jumping into Shabbat. And that's the that's where we'll begin. We'll begin with Erev Rosh Hashanah. The first minhag, the first halakha that we're going to discuss is fasting on Erev Rosh Hashanah, on the Eve of Rosh Hashanah. This is probably the only holiday where we fast right before the holiday is. Besides, obviously, actually, excuse me, Pesach as well. Pesach, we also fast, Erev Pesach. But on Rosh Hashanah, Erev Rosh Hashanah, there is a minhag to fast. Where does the minhag come from? There's a Midrash in Midrash and Humad that says the following. One time, there was a country that the people, the inhabitants of the city of the country didn't pay the taxes and it amounted to such a large amount. People, I don't know, they were under pressure, they couldn't pay. Whatever it was, they couldn't pay. And the king was very upset. He sent messengers and he was very patient with them and didn't pay their taxes. So therefore, the king decided to come with his army to the city and he's going to place some order in the city. Well, people found out that the king is coming. They were scared. What's the king going to do to us? We really don't have the money. So therefore, they sent out people to greet the king along the way. As the king was on his way to the city, he was greeted by some people from the city. And they begged him, please, your highness, do us a favor. We know we don't have the money and things. So the king was impressed that they came all the way out to the door, to the, to the road before he got to the city to greet him. So he decided to forgive a third of the debt. As he got closer to the city, he could already see the gates of the city. 
Another group of people came out to greet the king and again to beg him that he shouldn't, uh, he, he, should, he should forgive the loan, he should forgive the debt, and again he forgave another third. Finally the king reaches the city itself and all the inhabitants of the city of the country come out to greet the king and they ask for him to forgive the debt. To that the king agrees and he says, you know what, I forgive everything. He was very impressed with the kavod that they showed him and therefore he left. So likewise says the Midrash, when it's when the king over here is Akadosh Baruch Hu, is coming and he's coming on Yom Kippur, when the presence of Hashem is so uh, close to us, it's the closest that we'll ever get throughout the whole year. So therefore, as along the way when the king is coming, of Rosh Hashanah already, some people have him in Hag of Fasting. When already the king gets closer and closer, so then we have another group of people that fast and that's during the days of Aser Temet Teshubah. And finally Yom Kippur, everybody fasts. And that's the way Hashem forgives also the avonot, the avirot that we have, and He doesn't make us pay for our avirot. That's the midrash, and that's the reason why there is such a minhag. Now the halachot of such a minhag is as follows. First of all, if you're a person that never fasted beforehand, on Arev Rosh Hashanah, you should accept the fast on Tuesday, the day before Arev Rosh Hashanah, Tuesday by minha time, a person should accept the fast. It doesn't have to be specifically when you're praying minha, although it's better, but by minha time before shakiah, a person should say, I want to fast tomorrow, that's how it should do. But if you're a person that usually fasts every Rosh you don't have to accept it. Second halakha is that there are, you don't have to fast the whole day. There are different minha game. Again, it's not an obligation. It's only a minhag, it's only a custom. And if you want to fast up to Hatzot, which is about 12.47 p.m., then you can fast up to Hatzot. So that's also another point. So even though you, maybe you may, may not be able to fast the whole day, at least fast up to Hatzot. Another halakha, if you are fasting the whole day, then you should say anenu in the Amidah and Shomayat Tefillah, just like we say in every Ta'anit, we say anenu, it's a special tiflah and shamiat tiflah and amida. You, if you're fasting as well, even though you're tanit yahid, you should also say anenu. And finally, the last halakha we mentioned about this is like the regular halakhot when it comes to fasting. According to the Zohar, once a person goes to sleep, then he already accepted the fast. The only thing he could do before alot shahar is drink, but he cannot eat. According to halakha, if a person wants to wake up before Alot Shahar, he wants to sleep. But if he wants to wake up before Alot Shahar and to get uh, to eat something, you could do that. You know, you could. You don't have to accept it until Alot Shahar. Just make a condition before when you accept the fast that you're only accepting the fast once Alot Shahar begins. And this way, when you wake up in the morning before Alot Shahar, you can eat. That's one halakha. Another halakha for Arab Rosh Hashanah is that we don't say Tahanun. For the Sfaradin, that means we don't say Anna. We don't say any of that. We say Yehishim. And the Ashkenazim is simple. You don't say Tachnun. However, Selichot is said. And the Sfarim bring down because since Selichot are read before Alot Shahar, so it's still part of the night. Which means that there's also Halakha. If a person, uh, not for a person, when we pray Minha on Tuesday afternoon, the day before Ayrubi Rosh Hashanah, unlike other days where usually from Minha already we begin to say Yehishim, we begin not to skip on Tahanun, like for example Ayrubi Rosh Hashanah, over here, the day before Eid of Rosh Hashanah, we will say Tahanun. The only the Tahanun begins from Shahrit in the morning. Preferably, you should try to say Selehot 
before Alot Shahar. And in fact, it's it's a, a lot of people have been hung of saying it by Hatsot Silihot this way to avoid the issue. But even if a person is praying saying this Hot after Alot Shahar, you can still say this Hot just in Shahri. The Minhag is that we don't say Tahanun then. Next halakha is that this is for the Ashkenazim more than the Sfaradim. It applies to Sfaradim and Ashkenazim, but more so for the Ashkenazim. The Ashkenazim have a minhag during the days of Selihot, excuse me, during the days of Elul to blow shofar. However, Erev Rosh Hashanah, Wednesday for this year, that is, anytime that's Erev Rosh Hashanah, one should not blow the shofar at all. Kind of like the matzah on Erev Pesach also, how we don't eat matzah Erev Pesach. Likewise, we don't want you to get too used to the sound. You're not allowed to listen or blow the shofar on Erev Rosh Hashanah. If you are the Ba'atokeya and you need to practice, then do so privately. Make sure nobody hears you. Obviously, you're going to hear yourself, but make sure you do it in a way that you don't uh, spread the noise to everybody else. And that is the halakha for that. Next halakha for Ayyadav Rosh Hashanah, and that is Mikveh. It's brought down as Farim, especially the Mikubali. In, in general, by the way, Mikubali make a big point about going to Mikveh. Dariza, Arbhaim Vital always speak about going to Mikveh. The Hasidim, forget about it. Every single day you go to Mikveh. But even if you are not one of those, you don't go to Mikveh, it's highly, highly recommended that a person should go to Mikveh on Ayyadav Rosh Hashanah. In our days, we don't tell the ladies to go unless the lady is married and she it's her time to go to mikveh. That's a different category. But as far as regular thing that she should go to mikveh, mikveh out for ladies are not going to be open during the day on Ayr Rosh Hashanah. And therefore, we don't have such a minhag in our days. It could cause many problems. But we're talking about here for men. A person should try as much as possible to go to the mikveh. Now, I know it usually gets very, very crowded by the mikveh, Ayr Rosh Hashanah. So go early. Go in the morning. It's not so many people. And if you're still uncomfortable going to the mikveh or you're not around the mikveh, then you can do the next best option. This is a uh, this is uh, called shofchin tishah kabin. You know, It's a way to be metahay yourself. It's like it's like a mikveh. It's for from the takana of Ezra, and that is stand the way. Basically, the practical way of tishah kabin is to pour on yourself water. That's the amount of nine kabin, and that can happen by putting on the shower and standing under the shower between two to three minutes. I don't know how strong your water pressure is in your house. <laughs> I've been to different showers in my life. I've been to summer camp. I've been to, uh, you know, different places. And I've seen some strong, you know, pressure and light pressure. If you're there for three minutes, vadai, vadai, even the lightest pressure, you already had probably tashaka bean. In general, between two to three minutes, if you're standing under a shower, you let the water pour over your head and let it come down without any stopping for three minutes, you are, you'll say, the huba of the shaka bin. It's not like the mikveh. Mikveh is obviously much better, but when the case where you cannot go to the mikveh, whatever reason is, this is the next best option. You should know. If you are going to the mikveh, it's only a minhag, it's a nice thing to do. But you should not make a beracha. There's no commandment to go to mikveh, there's no obligation to go to mikveh, and therefore you cannot make the beracha of Ashraki uh, discern that the ladies do. Only ladies nowadays make a beracha of going and dipping in mikveh. Ladies and people are converting. Okay? So therefore, we don't make a beracha when dipping in the mikveh. However, the Ark of Vanot, the Benish High brings, now a person does go to the mikveh, you should dip a minimum of five times, and there is kavanot what to have, what to think about when you're underwater. And the five dips should be as follows. Some mikvahot I've seen, they write on a piece of paper. It's not a problem. But basically, the first dip when you're underwater, think you're purifying yourself. That's called tahara. Second one is to remove any anger from you. 
We spoke about this in the past. Anger is a gematria of mikveh. In Hebrew, that is not in English, obviously. Ka'as and mikveh is the same gematria. So therefore, the second dip when you're underwater, you have kavanah that you're removing any anger from yourself. Third dip is that in case there's any deen and on a person, you're dipping in water which represents chesed, and that's going to r- remove or, or sweeten up the deen from you. The fourth dip that you're dipping while underwater very quickly to have the kavanah, that you're removing your clothing, the spiritual clothing of last year. And at the same time, think of the following. Finally, when you dip the fifth time, you should have a mind. It's a new time. You're putting on the spiritual clothing for the next coming year. These are what the Benish High brings down. But if you don't have these kavanot in mind, it's still, it's not, it's, you can just go one time and it's fine. You want to dip more than five times. Also, you go ahead, dip as you like. The only thing is, be sensitive. There's other people, usually McVeigh is packed on Rosh Hashanah, Erev Rosh Hashanah, as well as Erev Yom Kippur. And therefore, if you want to have your kavanot, just make sure you don't do it on other people's back. Even if you paid for it, still a lot of people are waiting. It could be not, sometimes not fair. Just make sure that you always, in this stuff, we always say, when you want to do your extras, make sure that uh, you don't burden other people along the way. Next and final halakha for Erev Rosh Hashanah, and that, that we're going to talk about is that there are different menhagim that are brought down to be done at Rosh Hashanah. One is visiting the cemetery, Beit Hayim. A lot of people visit the cemetery. One is, for one, one simple reason is that the Gemara tells us that it's not only the living that, gets, that get judged on Rosh Hashanah, but even those who are deceased. So therefore, a lot of people like to visit their relatives in order to pray on their behalf that they should also be written to a good year. Yes, there is also judgment after death as well another reason for visiting the cemetery when a person goes to the cemetery it gives him this humble feeling that's where we're going to end up you know you kind of reality kicks in a little bit where am i running my whole life what am i running afterwards so that's also another good uh reason to visit the cemetery which means even if you don't have any relatives in the cemetery it's still when you go to the cemetery you it's yourself will be you'll have that humble feeling to approach the holidays in the right mental attitude Number two, minhag that's brought down is that we take haircuts, we shave, and we dress our Shabbos best. I think that rhymes, actually. Anyway, we take haircuts, we, we shave, and we dress in the best way, in the best clothing that we have, holiday clothing, and a lot of people wear new clothing. It's very good to wear new clothing. Why? I mean, what's the big deal? Okay, it's like any other holiday. The big deal is as follows. We're being judged here. We just said two seconds ago. We're being judged. Hashem's going to write. Who knows what's going to be written? Just reflect back on this past year. Think about what happened to you and what happened to many other people this past year. Sometimes the news, you know, is so so shocking and people went through such difficult times, whether it's financial, which everybody's feeling it, unfortunately, and whether the people who have sicknesses or death in the family, it's, it's very, very scary what happened. Right? So now we're being, and that's all taking place on Rosh Hashanah. How can you think about it? How can you dress yourself up? A person should not be, how can you come and all make yourself all nice? You should be mourning. You should be wearing a sackcloth. You should, you should keep your hair, your hair. And the answer is we do it anyway. You know why? Because we're doing an honor of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. With the Batahom, with the trust in Hashem, that Hashem is going to use His Middat Rahamim, Bazat Hashem, to write us to a good year. And that's the significance of this halakha. Yes, we take haircuts, we shave, 
and we wear our Shabbat clothing, which is holiday clothing, on that. Speaking of dressing for the holiday, the Sfarim bring down, a person should wear white. And we pointed out this in the Chot Shabbat, that to wear completely white in, an, in a community or in the Tzibur, in a congregation where people are not wearing white, but people are wearing black, is not, not only not recommended, it's a problem of Yohara. Do you not allow to stick out? That's a, always a very important rule. It's called Yohara. And therefore, it's like a hatam bin ha'avelim, as the Sfarim bring down. Yeah, you're like a, a you're like a, a groom amongst all the mourners. You don't walk. You don't. You don't. Uh, a kalau doesn't go visit the Beit Abel with her wedding dress. You understand? It's not. It's not the proper thing. So wait or wait till after the wedding and then go visit with your regular clothing. So likewise over here, you're wearing all white when everybody is not wearing white. You're sticking out. Besides that, everybody's gonna have their eyes on you and they're gonna talk about you and probably let's out also on the holiday. Besides all that, it's not a good thing. So therefore, what people do is they wear white clothing. I mean, they say they don't stick out in their, in their suit. Their suits are darker, like everybody else around them. But they would wear, for example, a white tie. Uh, some people wear it's accepted a white yarmulke. Okay, beseder. The Ashkenazim, they wear a kittel, a white kittel, or maybe not all of them, dif- different customs. Again, if your community or your congregation does it, so you're not sticking out. You're, not, you're like just the rest of them, or at least a good number of them. But if you are going to stick out, then don't do it. You know, you'll, you'll get away, not get away, but it'll be good enough that you're wearing a white shirt and a white undershirt and white seat. That's already good enough. Another thing that's done on Erev Rosh Hashanah is that everybody wishes everybody a good year, a good year. And of course, my favorite, we get about a thousand text messages on Erev Rosh Hashanah. Please forgive me. No, actually, forgive me is, is the one they said on Erev Yom Kippur. But on Rosh Hashanah, Erev Rosh Hashanah, everybody sends a text message. You should have a year, 365 days, and thousands of hours of blessings. Da, 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 da. And of course, it's a mass text. And it's going to everybody, and everybody's sending it. In it, you know, some people complain, well, you won't have used to call me. True, a phone call obviously has much more meaning, but we're so much busier today, and we want to make everybody feel a little bit good. And true, it does become annoying after the 10th time that you get it, you know, from up to number 10, okay, you can handle it. The first two are very nice, but from already 3 to 10 already is uh, getting on borderline. From 10 to 1,000, it's already very annoying. But you know what? When you step back a little bit and you think about it, it's wonderful. Look how the Jewish people are thinking of each other. Nobody's sending that text message during the holidays of the Goyim to all the Goyim that they know, unless it's a business opportunity. Over here, for no reason. You're just another Jew on the list, they're going to send you... Wishing you a good year. Say amen, take it, and Baruch Hashem, it's a good, nice thing. Do I recommend it? That's up to you to decide. But certainly, one should call his rabbis, phone calls, should call his parents, should call his siblings, and the people that, of course, that you should make uh, put an emphasis to call people that others may not call. That's very important. Baruch Hashem, you might be a person that people are calling. But there are a lot of people, unfortunately, that those people, nobody's going to call. Some people are going to call. Sometimes you have old people in an old age home. They might have family or the family is maybe not visiting them so often. Or they have a very small amount of family. Sometimes it have to be old age home. They can be as young as 14, 15 years old. And there's just, you know, one of those not popular ki- children. Teach your children. Call those kids. The kids that, 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 that nobody is calling. You should call them. Make them feel good. That's a very big Zechut to have with you going to Rosh Hashanah. And then, yes, it makes a big difference. Just a phone call, hi, I wanted to wish you a good year. Just like that, the person feels very good about it. 
He could be the only one. He could be another one of 200. It still makes him feel good. Especially if you're the only one calling him. Can you imagine what a hizuk that gives? Certainly that will go into your zikhut, into Rosh Hashanah. With that, we move on now to second category of halakhot. And that is the halakhot regarding the minhagim, the customs on Rosh Hashanah. Let me just repeat the numbers in case anybody wants uh, to call in or text in. <clears throat> the number is 718-683-5858. If you have any questions live, you can call in right now. The number for the text line is 347-927-8398. Minhagim of Rosh Hashanah, are, there's a lot of different minhagim. Before we get to the actual uh, subject of the minhagim, of what is done, what is avoided on Rosh Hashanah, let me just tell you in general, a very important concept. And that is that everything, the way you deal with it from the beginning, it sets the tone for everything else. There's a Gemara. And the Gemara's words, although the Kevana means something else in the Gemara, but the words themselves, when you interpret them in a different way, it could also have a different meaning. The Gemara talks about, actually, last week's parasha, Shoftim. The Gemara talks about a case of a person who was found dead. The Torah talks about it, actually. The Torah says if a person was found dead, and we don't know, he was not found dead, he was found killed, then we have to measure... The, his body to the closest city, the closest city that it's around, and then whatever city he's closest to, from there we make them bring the agla arufa. That's in short the halakha of a body that's found killed in the middle of nowhere. We measure to the closest city. The Gemara has a question, Masechet Sota. What would be if a person's body was not whole? His head was chopped off. His head was one place and his body was somewhere else. How did it happen? Don't ask. But that's what happened. Which the Gemara asks, because if you would measure from the head, you get, you, the closest city will be the city A. And if you measure from the body, the closest city to the body will be city B. So where do we follow? Do we follow the city that's closest to the body or the city that's closest to the head? Says the Gemara, the body is taken and placed next to the head. Gufa batarisha garir. That's the words of the Gemara. The body follows the head. And therefore, you take the Aglarufa from the city that's closest to the head, which in our example is the city of A. The words the Gemara uses is that Gufa batarisha garir. The body follows the head. And the Sfarim bring down that that's the same way with every thing that a person encounters in life, there is a beginning, there's a first stage of it, and then there's the rest of it, which is compared to the body. There's the shah, the beginning, and there's the goof, and then there's the body that's afterwards. Says the Gemara, gufa batarisha garir, the body follows the head. And this Farim explained, the way you set the tone in the beginning, that's the way it is for the rest. For a short example, we all know how important Shalom Bait is, and the emphasis that's placed on the first year of marriage. The way you set the tone in your Shalom Bait, in your household, the first year of marriage, how sensitive you are to your wife, how your wife is uh, shows the affection to her husband, the way you set the tone that first year, that could set the tone for the rest of the marriage. And many fights actually are a result of what didn't happen or wasn't didn't take place properly on the first year. Likewise, we are coming now to a new year. 
the new year begins with Rosh Hashanah. The first two days of the year are the first two days of the Rosh Hashanah. And if you want to look at it more, really, the first month of the year, year which is the month of Tishrei. So make sure you set the tone properly. You do everything and you do everything proper. True, you can't keep, you can't maintain the stringencies or this level or the standard throughout the whole year, but at least from the beginning, when you set the tone right, it could have its effects for the rest of the year. And therefore, we'll begin with the first thing. The Gemara in Yerushalmi, Talmud Yerushalmi. Okay, the Talmud Yerushalmi says that anybody who sleeps on Rosh Hashanah, his mazal also sleeps. What does that mean? His luck also sleeps. I'm telling you exactly what it says in the Gemara. His mazal sleeps. We all know a person who's sleeping, uh, you know, it's kind of like a little bit of a laziness. It's very slow. So now, because of this Yerushalmi, it's highly recommended a person should not sleep Rosh Hashanah. But many people don't know is that Yerushalmi is talking about not sleeping in the day of Rosh Hashanah. Of course you go to sleep on Rosh Hashanah at night. It's not a question. But in the daytime of Rosh Hashanah, you shouldn't sleep. What is called the daytime? Many people think that the time I wake up, whatever time I wake up, so then I shouldn't go back to sleep on Rosh Hashanah. Which means if you decide to wake up at 9.30, 10 o'clock in the morning, then you know what? <laughs> Forget about Kriyat Shema if you're a man, right? But uh, if you're a woman and you have the obligation of Kriyat Shema, you're, and you didn't sleep the whole day, you consider that you'll say the Habat Yerushami. That's not what Yerushami means, really from Alot Shah, from dawn. Dawn is very early. Dawn's around, I don't know, 5 o'clock, uh, maybe 5.10. That means you have to be up from about around 5 a.m. that you shouldn't be considered sleeping during the day of Rosh Hashanah. For this reason, many people pray nets on Rosh Hashanah. Why? You're up anyway. So if you're up anyway, you might as well use that time to go pray nets. Many people read Tehillim on Rosh Hashanah, and it's also a minhag, to try to finish Sefer Tehillim twice, because there's 150 perakim in Sefer Tehillim. When you finish it twice, that's 300 perakim of Tehillim that equals... Uh, the gematria of kaper. So therefore, they wake up earlier. Even their minyan prays a little bit later, they still wake up earlier in order that they should say tehillim. And that's how they occupy their time that they shouldn't fall asleep. They say tehillim. And like my Rosh Hashiva says all the time, Rabbi Shor, the trick to waking up early, it's a big segula, is to sleep early. When you sleep early, you're able to wake up early on time. Do you have to Wake up before No, I'm telling you what the Yushami says. The Yushami says if you don't want your mazal to sleep, so you, so you don't sleep on Rosh Hashanah. If it's very, very difficult, I can't do it, try to hold off sleep until after Hatzot, until after 1247. Then you can take a little bit of a nap if it's very, very necessary. That's the Yushami. And again, it's a minhag. It's not an obligation. And if you like your mazal not to sleep, that's a way to do it. Now, regarding that, because we mentioned a little bit about Tefillah, we have a question over here. What is the obligation of a woman with going to shul and prayers? And do you know any shuls that does hatarat nedarim for women? Okay, it's two separate questions. Regarding the obligation of women in prayer on Rosh Hashanah, it is no different than any other day. Tefillah is an obligation on a daily basis where men are obligated to pray three times in specific times. Women are patur, are exempt from praying three times because these three times come in a specific time. And the rule is, comes in a specific time, women are exempt. Therefore, women the, the, the holiday of Rosh Hashanah should be no different. Also comes a specific time. 
women do not have an obligation to go to shul. Even though everybody goes to shul, they don't have an obligation. Ah, what about shofar, shofar? Okay, so let me explain something about shofar. Shofar is also not an obligation. There's no obligation to listen to shofar by women. Not men, by women. There's no obligation. The laws of shofar we'll talk about next week. But as far as the obligation, no, there's no obligation. Which means that if a woman does want to listen to shofar, by all means, hazaku baruch. It's like any mitzvah say that woman exempts, she wants to do it. She wants to sit in the sukkah. There's no obligation. It comes in a specific time. But if she does it, she gets a reward. If she wants to learn Torah, she has no obligation. But if she wants to, she gets a reward. If she wants to listen to shofar, also there's no obligation. But if she does, then hazaku baruch, you also get reward for listening to the shofar. But I want to point out something very important. Make sure that whenever you want to do something extra, like listening to shofar, I'm talking to the ladies now. You want to listen to shofar, which is extra, just make sure that you don't do any avirot along the way. Avirot? Yeah, avirot. You know what avirot is? For Sfaradim, for example, the Sfaradim do not make a bracha on any mitzvah that they're patur from. A woman who's patur from lulab, a woman who's patur from sukkah, a woman who's patur from shofar, cannot make a bracha on these mitzvot when she wants to do it. She wants to shake lulab, shake it, don't make a bracha on it. Contrary to what they, you see in the, in the streets, the Chabad giving lulabim, netrogim, to women and making say, them say berachot. That's Ashkenazim. They have, they have Ashkenazim make berachot on mitzvot say even women make berachot on mitzvot even though they're exempt. Not us, Faradim. We don't make beracha on the mitzvot asid shazman gerama, which means if you are a person blowing shofar for a lady, make sure that she doesn't make a bracha and you don't make a bracha for her. The only time the bracha will be recited is if there's a man who needs to hear shofar because he didn't hear it, he wasn't yotze yet, and you're covering the man, then you can make a bracha for him. That's one area you have to make sure not to do navira as you do a mitzvah. Another area that you have to be careful not to do navira, and I say this all the time in every shul, whatever I can. And I know it's very hard for people not to listen, but you should know, if you really logically think about it, you ask any rabbi in the world, I don't care, unless the rabbi is off, I'm, it's not Mechlal rabbi, but I'm talking about any rabbi that is that, that has his head on straight. If a lady wants to come to shul to listen to the shofar, hazaku baruch, but if you're coming to shul, and there's nobody who's going to watch your kids, and as a result, you're going to bring your kids to shul, and your kids are going to disturb the shul because they're running around saying, Mommy, where's Daddy? I want to go to Daddy. I want to go to Abba. I want to go to this. And they're running around, Oh, he took my candy, and they're crying, especially when you bring babies into the shul. And as a result, the men who have the obligation of listening to the shofar are not hearing the whole all the tekiyot. We're going to talk about next week how it's important to listen to all the tekiyot, or they're... Sometimes you can't even hear the kikot at all. Even if the men might be able to hear, sometimes the ladies who worked so hard to find a babysitter for their children, they came to shul to listen to the shofar, and you're bringing your child making so much noise, what in the world are you, are you coming to shul for? It's, I, I guarantee you, there's, it's worse. It's worse to come to shul in such a case. Nobody will disagree with me with this. If somebody disagrees, please call me right now. Call to the station and please explain to me why I'm wrong. Of course, it's, it's wrong. You cannot bring children to true and disturb everybody. You don't have an obligation to listen. You want to listen? But don't bring children that are going to disturb in the shul. So what do you do? So what you can do is what they do in many shuls is that later on in the daytime, like before Minha, they'll have a, a person blowing the shofar again if everybody needs to hear it. 
And what's beautiful is that we have some people, Sadiqim in the community, will go around to different houses where in those houses they'll have a, a group of women meeting together, let's say on the same block, and they'll blow for these ladies. And it's a much bigger zikhut that way. Even though he never came to shul, it's a much bigger zikhut. So why do ladies insist on coming to shul? Yeah, it's inspirational. It's, it gives them hizuk. But we have to keep in mind, Rabotai, and ladies and gentlemen, is that all the hizuk is very important as long as it doesn't disturb and it doesn't affect somebody else from not fulfilling his mitzvah. That is that about going to shul and listening to the shofar. The other thing that you wanted to know is hatarat nedarim for women. And this is also important to keep in mind. If a woman is married, then her husband does hatarat nedarim on her behalf. He doesn't need the woman to be present there. When we stand and we say hatarat nedarim, we, we ask that the Beit Din, Shalmata, should forgive us for the nedarim. For us, for our wives and our children that are under bar mitzvah. So a woman doesn't have to be in shul for hatarat nedarim. <laughs> it's interesting is that we find that the things that the women are patu for, like hatarat nedarim, they don't have to be there, married woman. Shul gets packed for hatarat nedarim. There's no obligation to do hatarat nedarim if you're married. Or if you're single and you're above the age of bat mitzvah and you want to do hatarat nedarim, okay. So then you don't need to come to shul either. If you want to come to shul, where they do it, where the men are doing it, and you're saying it along the same time, fine. You can do it. There's many shuls along. Sfaradim do it all the time. They do it, I think, the Motzai Shabbat before Rosh Hashanah and before Yom Kippur. But you could even take any three men. They could be your relatives. It could be your father, your brother, and your brother. All Any relatives, three men, and you could say the Hattara in front of them. And that would work also for Tanrim. You don't necessarily need to come to shul. And again, if you're married, then just tell your husband, you have me in mind, right? And that's good enough. Another question we're getting from the text line over here is, does standing under the shower also work for ladies for their seven days if they can't get their mikveh? Absolutely not. No way. Make sure this thing with standing under the mikveh is only a special deen which is called takanat azra, is, uh, is for tebilat keri. This is only something special for men. And it's because the tum'ah that comes to, that, that we're trying to remove is something that was decreed by Azar Sofir. The tum'ah that a woman has is tum'ah midde'oraita. And that is severe, in fact. If she doesn't go to 100% kosher mikveh, some mikveh are not 100%. If she doesn't go to 100% kosher mikveh, then she will still remain nida. And not just remain that, she, the isur of being with such a woman is an isur of karet, which is very, very severe. It's like eating a full meal on Yom Kippur. So make sure, Rabotai, that uh, you don't... Uh, thank you for, very much for texting and clarifying that. The standing under the shower is only for men. It's a special men thing because we don't have an obligation to go into mikveh like we said. Not for ladies. I thank you again for that question. Let's continue now. Eating the simanim. Okay. Another minhag on Rosh Hashanah is could a person... I mean, not could a person. The eating the simanim. The Gemara says simana miltahi. What does that mean, Simana Miltahi? If you eat something, the word, the names of the food that you eat also have a significance. Remember, Rosh Hashanah, we're trying to be very, very careful to do everything right and not to mess up with anything. So, therefore, <clears throat> the the uh, great significance is given to the type of food that we are eating on Rosh Hashanah. For example, the Gemara says you take a tamar, a date. In Hebrew, a date is called a tamar. And because it sounds like Yitamu, therefore, you could say 
Yitamu sonenu, let Hashem get rid of our enemies, let him get rid of our the the, the heavenly prosecution against us in Shamayim and by eating the date. Yes, it has a significance. So the Gemara also explains that the significance of the names of the food that we eat is also by um, what's it called? The, 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 it could also happen in any language. I mean to say, if the food has any name, it has a specific name in a different language, not only in Hebrew. Tamar we know in Hebrew, so that sounds like yitamu or to finish, so that's fine. But if you have uh, something like what the Ashkenazim do, the carrots, carrot is from the word, you could say the word yikartu. Hashem should cut off all the spiritual prosecution from against us, from against us. So therefore, you, they, the Ashkenazim will eat a carrot. So it doesn't have to be specifically. It doesn't have to be specifically things only in Hebrew, and it could also be done with anything. Not only the ones that are brought down in the Siddur or in the Gemara. You can take whatever you want. For example, I recommend to people, single people that are having a difficult time finding a date. I recommend that you take a date, a tamar, and of course you say that you hear atzon, you know, for the regular date, and then you say you hear atzon, Hashem should find us a good date. You can say in English also, Hashem understands all languages, don't worry. Uh, for people who don't have children, and they would like to have zera uh, shalikayama, I recommend you take seeds, right? You take seeds and you say, and eat seeds. Anything, anything as long as it sounds right and it sounds appropriate and matching and of course you make sure not to let it get out of hand and become into a litzanut then you could do it for a siman however there are traditional customary things that we do specific foods that we do and i'll tell you the order and there's also a specific order that you should do them there are different opinions that are written down on how you should do the order there's a kafahim i went over here i brought down like we usually do from the ben ishai there's eight types of foods that the Benish High brings down. And he says you'd eat these simanim in the following order. And I'm going to list them over here. I don't expect you to remember by heart, but I, if you would like to come back to this class or if you'd like to email me, then I could send you the, uh, the list over here that's written down over here. And the list is as follows. Number one is a date. Number two is what's called the rubia, which is basically string beans and some say it's black-eyed peas. Number three is karte. Number four is salka. Um, I, I can't help you in English in these things. Uh, my mom knows what these things are and she sets them up for me. And I, I know that this is salka and I know what this is. Anyway, it's a type of uh, leafy thing. Number five is kara, which is a gourd. Number six is rimon. That's simple. That's a pomegranate. Number seven is dipping the apple in sugar. Not in honey. According to the Benish Hai, you can, don't eat honey on Rosh Hashanah. Honey comes from the waste of bees and you. that's not a good siman. Yes, we know dip the apple in the honey, but the Benish Hai says to avoid honey on Rosh Hashanah. So you dip it in something sweet like sugar. Does Splenda work? Yes, Splenda also works. It doesn't have to be only sugar. It could be anything that's sweet. And then the, finally, the eighth siman, the Benish Hai says, is the Rosh Kebis, the head of a sheep. A lot of people, not a lot of people, it's brought down that people avoid the head of fish or the head of a goat. Why? Because in Hebrew, a fish is called dag, from the word of de'aga, and a goat is called az, az, like midat adin. Therefore, you shouldn't use that. Preferably, if you don't have a head of a sheep, you know, that, by the way, it could be a tongue also, you could use a 
a, a chicken, a cooked chicken, the head of a cooked chicken, if you could find them as well. Okay, then we have the, okay, that's that. Then we have the next thing is, when to eat the simanim. The simanim, these things, the foods, the special foods that we eat, are brought down that a person should eat them when? He should eat them on, everybody, everybody has been hacked to eat them on the first night. Most people also eat them on the second night as well, although I've been, I remember in yeshiva eating by certain people's houses, where they didn't eat them on the second night, Ashkenazim, okay. But most people, Svaradim, I know we eat them on both nights. And some people even have a minhag to eat them even during the daytime Sa'uda of Rosh Hashanah, like the Ben Yishai brings down himself, that was a minhag by his family, is to eat them also then. You could do any or all the above, it doesn't make a difference, it's all for a good siman. In case a person doesn't have a sim, uh, these simanim, don't drive yourself nuts or everybody around you crazy and get them all, uh, you know, anxious and nervous. It's fine. It's a good siman. If you don't have it, doesn't mean it's a bad siman. It's just that you try to do as much as possible. Next. This is important halakhot regarding the simanim because you are eating them in the Sa'uda. And that is to, to know the following halakhot. The order of eating the simanim is as follows. First, you make kiddush. After kiddush, you should wash eat at least a kizayit to a kibetzah of bread, and then afterwards eat the simanim. Okay? That's the order. You should have them If you have them before the sauda, you might put yourself in a big problem. For sure, there's a big mahlokit over here of which berachat to say and not berachat to, to say. So therefore, don't eat them until after you eat the bread, after you eat the piece of uh, bread, the kezayit of bread, and then you should have the simanim. Now, because you're eating it betocha se'auda, so what's going to happen is that most of the foods that we listed here, you're not going to make any special beracha on them, with the exception of the dates and the pomegranate. But one beracha will suffice for all them. So therefore, being that the date is the first one on the list, you take the date, you make a bracha of ha'ayetz on the date, and with the bracha of ha'ayetz, that will cover... Any ha'ayats that is necessary, that is needed to be said on the simanim, and that's what you have kavanah for. Then, how do you say the rihiratzon? Since, besides the date, obviously, first you make, you know, besides the date, the date you're going to make a bracha ha'ayats, take a little bite, and then you're going to say the rihiratzon. For the other simanim, first you say the rihiratzon, which is brought down, you know, the special prayer that you say before eating the simanim, and then afterwards, you take a bite from the simanim. You don't have to fill yourself up from the simanim. A small little bite is good enough. So maybe you should, you know, what I find best is that, you know, you know how many people are coming, kind of like Lila said. They prepare for everybody a small little plate with the simanim. And then you go along, somebody should lead the table going along. The big question that's usually asked is, what about Shehiyanu? What fruit, when do I say Shehiyanu? So we spoke about this in the past as well, is that shahiyanu is very hard to say on the fruits. Most of the fruits are available throughout the whole year, and it's very difficult to really find fruit that's new that you could say shahiyanu on. So therefore, what is recommended is that a person should say, uh, not recommend, let's start, excuse me, let me clarify. When you make kiddush, when you're making kiddush on Leil uh, Rosh Hashanah, you're going to make shahiyanu. At the conclusion, the last berakhah in the Kiddush is going to be Shahiyanu. Everybody will say Shahiyanu on both nights. Here and in Israel, you're going to say Shahiyanu at the end of Kiddush on both nights. On Wednesday night 
and on Thursday night, two nights of Rosh Hashanah. Why are you saying Shahiyanu? You should have Kavana that the Shahiyanu should cover also any of the fruits that you're going to have later on, the Simanim, in case they need a Shahiyanu. If you happen to find a new fruit, one new fruit that you will be required to say Shahiyanu according to Halakha, then it's preferable to keep that new fruit for the second night, the second night of Rosh Hashanah, because there's a mahlokid regarding the Shahiyan on the second night of Rosh Hashanah, and therefore it's better to keep that food for the second night. Also, another point to bring out, some have a minhag that when the ladies light the candles for Rosh Hashanah, they make Shahiyan by candle lighting. And the Shahiyan is going on the holiday. However, you should keep two points in mind. Number one is that if you're making shahiyanu by candlelighting and there is such a minhag, if you already have such a minhag, then you already have to accept the holiday. You can't just light the candles and then go do whatever you want. You have to light the candles and accept the holiday. Once you say shahiyanu, if, if you plan to say shahiyanu. However, if you are, uh, you're not going to say shahiyanu, it's better to keep it for the Kiddush. That's really the preferable way to keep it for the Kiddush. To keep Shahiyanu to be said by the, the Kiddush. That's really Lechatela according to all opinions. And somebody is asking over here, what about people that don't like or enjoy eating these fruits? I hear you. Okay, so uh, if you really, really don't like it, don't eat it. If you can't bring yourself to even take a small bite, then okay, don't eat it. Yes, it's a good siman. Maybe you can find something that sounds similar in any other language that you're familiar with. But if you don't like it, you don't have to eat it. There's no obligation to eat it. It's a good siman. If you're going to be all iwi and, 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 and disgusted and things, that might be a worse siman than eating that bite and getting all disgusted. So therefore, if you don't like it, you don't have to eat it. I know by the Rosh Kebis, I like the fact that I know I'm eating the head now, even though I don't enjoy the taste necessarily, but it doesn't disgust me. I know that that taste itself, not the taste, excuse me, the idea of it, I feel better than not eating it. But you don't have to love the food and you don't have to eat a lot of it. A small little bite from it is good enough. If you can't even bring yourself to that, you don't have an obligation to force yourself to eat such a thing. Next, another bin hag that's on Rosh Hashanah and this is found in the Benish Hai, and some, a lot of Mahzorim also have it, this Faradi Mahzorim, is that there's special tefillot and the special Pesukim to be said before you make your Kiddush on the night of Rosh Hashanah. And that, Rabotai, is very, very important, very nice, but we will tell you is that we will, uh, that, that you have to be careful that you shouldn't be matriyah, other people, you shouldn't burden other people to make them wait for you why you say all your special Pesukim, special praise before Kiddush, and everybody's waiting for you to make the Kiddush. So if you want to say all these Pesukim, make sure you come home extra early until everybody gets together for Kiddush and say them. But if everybody has to wait for you, it's definitely not worth it that people should be upset at you and be angry at you, especially sometimes people are fasting, like we said, and they just want to make Kiddush. So don't do your Hamrot on other people's backs as the general rule that we always mention. Another minhag that's brought down on Rosh Hashanah is that there are foods and things that people should avoid. Up to now, we told you what you should eat. It's a good siman. But they also, because the foods have a siman in their name and in their flavor, so therefore there are certain foods and things that people avoid. Number one is anything that's sour. Sour fruits, like for example, you know, the white grapes or the, the green grapes, 
green apples people avoid because it's sour. Or even dishes themselves are made to be sour. No vinegar, that people don't put vinegar in their salads. It's not an obligation again. But the idea is that you want to avoid anything sour because you don't want to have a sour year. Some people don't even eat lemons. They avoid lemons. What they do otherwise though is that people do try to get, do try to eat sweet foods and sweet dishes. Even though they might not always make it sweet, they'll become a little bit more Ashkenazi during the holidays. They'll make their foods a little bit sweeter. And like we said in the past, uh, not in the past, we just said it beforehand, Benishai says, although, you know, a lot of people use honey a lot, but Benishai says, avoid honey on Rosh Hashanah. So what do you do for sweet stuff? You do it with sugar. There's a minhag that when you make hamoti, they take the bread and they dip it, some, the Ashkenazim will dip in honey, we dip it in sugar. The Kafa Hayim the point out though, don't forget about the salt. The salt is, a, is the words melah, it's the same letters as lehim, and it has a great significance when you dip it three times. So if you want to dip your bread in sugar, first dip it three times in salt, and then dip it in sugar. That's very important, api kabbalah, and uh, that's probably more important than just the flavor of the sweet in the uh, in on your bread. Another thing that people try to avoid is things that don't look good, like black grapes, uh, or things that are not 100% ripe yet. Unripe foods are not supposed to be eaten also on Rosh Hashanah. Again, it's not a 100% obligation, but it's good to avoid it. Also very important, and this is really, very important, not to get angry on Rosh Hashanah. You shouldn't get angry all year. The Zohar speaks very harshly about a person getting angry. When a person gets angry, Zohar says his neshama leaves him, and a different evil spirit comes into him. Like we said, some people say you have to go to mikveh after you get angry. Uh, David Melech had a brother, his oldest brother, who Hashem says, I despise him because he gets angry. I can imagine his anger, right? Anger is always supposed to be avoided, especially on Rosh Hashanah. It's not a good siman Rosh Hashanah. So therefore, as a good advice, avoid people or situations that will get you angry. You all know a certain person that gets you upset? Avoid them. Don't go to their house on Rosh Hashanah. Visit them on Sukkot. It's fine. Maybe you'll be more mellow over there. Also, Rabbi, uh, the... the um, Suhana Ruch brings down that people are careful not to eat nuts because in Hebrew, nut is egoz and egoz is a gematria of hit. So, therefore, people don't eat nuts on Rosh Hashanah. Rabbi Shore used to say every single year before Rosh Hashanah that people are so careful not, not to eat nuts because it's a gematria of hit. But he says he should know about that the, another thing that has a gematria of hit is hit itself. You're so careful to avoid eating nuts, make sure you're also careful to avoid sins themselves also on Rosh Hashanah, which means try to make sure that you eat, <coughs> excuse me, that you are careful that not to commit any sins till you keep your mitzvot to the best of your ability. Another minhag that's on Rosh Hashanah, or not really minhag, halakha brings down, person is supposed to be happy when eating on Rosh Hashanah, there is an opinion by Rabbi Nisim Gaon who says that one should fast on Rosh Hashanah. However, all the Rishonim disagree with him. And therefore, a person should not fast on Rosh Hashanah. However, however, still a person has to be careful not to overeat on Rosh Hashanah either. Why is that? Because, keep in mind, it's a Yom Haddin. Which by itself answers the next question. We have a question. Could a person make a barbecue on Rosh Hashanah? Well, the... <laughs> So, usually the question to that means, it doesn't mean, can I have roasted meat on Shana? That's not the meaning of the question. The question is, can I make a barbecue? 
You know, a barbecue has a different atmosphere. The atmosphere of a barbecue is it's chilled out, it's relaxed, it's uh, it's more uh, you know, it's a, like a nice nice fun time. But I keep in mind, Rosh Hashanah is a day of din. It's judgment day. You're being judged. And you sit there and have a barbecue. Can you imagine a person is going to a courtroom and in the courtroom, outside the courtroom, he's sitting there in the parking lot making a barbecue? How's that, how's that look? He's being judged not for a parking ticket. He's being judged if he suspend the next 20 years in jail. And now all the news, you know, it's covering this story. They see him barbecuing outside. Why? <laughs> what kind of, kind of thing is that? We're being judged right now for the rest of our lives on this deer. We're going out and making a barbecue? Is it mutar going to halakha, Rabbi? That's all I want to know. I don't know what to tell you. According to Dean, you could have roasted meat. To make a whole barbecue, you decide. The Gemara says, how come we don't say halal on Rosh Hashanah? The Gemara says, how could you say halal? Hashem has in front of him the books of life and death open up. You're going to say halal? Halal, you're praising God, but still, it's like a song. You're singing it. You're, it's not the proper time to say halal on Rosh Hashanah. You decide for yourself if you think it's proper to make a barbecue on Rosh Hashanah. I'll tell you one thing. I don't do it. Okay, next. Next category of halachot, which it doesn't seem like we're going to have so much time to cover it now, but maybe we'll do it next week, just to go over it very quickly. If not next week, we'll do it right before Rosh Hashanah comes. And that is the tefillot of Rosh Hashanah. There are tefillot of Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah, in fact, is known specifically for the tefillot. And that's what the question was beforehand. What about going to shul and everything that has to do with tefillot? And although some of these halachot pertain more to the rabbis and to the people in charge of the shul, still there are a lot of halachot over here that we do have to know ourselves about the filot on Rosh Hashanah, what to avoid, what to keep, and uh, what to... But we should keep in mind one thing because we have to sign off already. No, actually, we have a few more minutes. Yeah, we get through some of these halachot. Let's begin with the halachot of tefillot. Number one is the halachot of a hazan, shliyah zabur. In order for a person to be a shliyah tzibur on any time really, but more specifically during these days of the holidays, there are qualifications that are brought down in halakha that a person needs to have in order to be a hazan. I listed over here six qualifications. And before I go through them, I just want you to know that you don't necessarily have one person that meets all the criteria over here. Sometimes you do. But not always do you do you, you not always. If you're coming to choose, if you have a choice now between people that may have some of these six things, and you know, some people will have some, some people will have the others. So in that case, I listed them in the in order that the higher one on the top of the list, that's more important. So the following six qualifications for Hazan in the in the Preferred order is as follows. Number one is that he should be a Tamil Hakam, a Ben Torah, a person who's knowledgeable in Torah. Obviously, that comes in with good midot. Number two is that he's a Yere Shamayim. Sometimes people are very knowledgeable in Torah, but yeah, they don't care. They'll do things that are Averro, they do things that are Mahloke, they put themselves in, in cases where it's very, very borderline. So you need a person that also has Yerat Shamayim. Number three is that he's not known to commit any sins. Number four is that he has a pleasant voice, a voice that people like. Number five is that he should be married. Number six, like the Kohen Gadot, he should be also above the age of 30. This is the Lechat And the Hida points out also that this applies also to the Baal Tokeya. 
Not only the Hazam, but also the Ba'al Tokeah. Now I listed them in order. So therefore, if you have a person who's coming from a yeshiva, he's a Ben Torah, the guy is a Yeresh Shamayim, is known as a very good person, but he's not married. He has a pretty decent voice. But you have another person who has a beautiful voice, and he is married. He's all even above the age of 30, but he's a regular simple man. No, he keeps Shabbat, but he's a simple man. So being that the boy Yeshiva Bahur is a Tamir Hacham, and he has a voice that, you know, the Kahal doesn't mind, he is preferable to have him than to have the other person who's married and above the age of 60 and he has a nicer voice. It doesn't go by voice. It's not a concert, Rosh Hashanah. It's a time we want our prayers to be accepted and he's representing us. And sometimes you have a shul where people don't know how to pray. So therefore you want to choose the best and most qualified hazan that you can. And that's the order that we listed over here. We'll just end off with this, is that the Hakam Yosef Raful Shlita has told me in the past that when he grew up in Yerushalayim, every shul, even the shul where the simple people prayed, people were, you know, were not knowledgeable. They had a hazan throughout the whole year. But when it came to the holidays, Yamim Noraim, they were very makpid, they were very particular to choose a hazan that's a tamid hacham, a talmid from the yeshiva, that he should be the hazan throughout the whole holiday from Rosh Hashanah until Yom Kippur. This is even for the simple folks in Yerushalayim in the old days where they even have money, they were makbir on that. That we have many Tamil Hachamim, many Bnei Torah in our days, we should also try to be makbir, and this way, Mazat Hashem, our Teflot are accepted, and we should have a wonderful year. Mazat Hashem, next week we'll continue some of these halachot, and then we'll go into the halachot of Shofar. And if anybody would like to call in right now, you could call in, I'll be here for the next few minutes. The number is 718-683-5858 if you'd like to call in. Again, 718 718- 683-5858 to text in your question if I haven't answered it yet will be 347-927-8398 thank you for listening and have a wonderful week and the Shabbat Shalom we'll meet you again here next Wednesday at 2 o'clock on jrootradio.com thank you Iran and jrootradio and of course of David Levine as well <laughs>